This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour, the week in review. Welcome to Trumpet Hour this Friday, January 26th. I'm Philip Nice with our Philadelphia Trumpet writers, Jeremiah Jacques, Mihailo Zekic, Richard Palmer, and Andrew Miller. And this week we will take it in that order with Jeremiah Jacques covering Asia, then Mihailo Zekic will cover the Middle East, Richard Palmer will update you on Europe, and Andrew Miller will update you on Anglo-America. You will get a week's worth of news, a globe's worth of news. So this week we will start with a rundown of the top stories from Asia from Jeremiah Jacques. Chinese naval scientists said Monday that they've developed a smart shell for kinetic energy weapons. The shells are propelled by an electromagnetic gun and fly at the staggering speed of almost 8,000 feet per second. The shells are also said to be able to receive signals from China's Baidu satellite navigation system, so that enables them to hit targets with remarkable accuracy. This is actually an idea that the U.S. Navy worked at for years, but ended up abandoning back in 2021. So if China's claims that it has developed this weapon are accurate, it could dramatically reshape the military landscape in China's favor. Another quick story about Taiwan. This is the nation that the Chinese Communist Party claims is rightfully theirs, even though they never controlled it at any time. And the Chinese say they will take Taiwan by force if they have to. Another quick story about Taiwan. This is the nation that the Chinese Communist Party claims is rightfully theirs, even though they never controlled it at any time. And the Chinese say that they will take Taiwan by force if they have to. Well, on Thursday, the Taiwanese appeared to be taking these Chinese threats seriously because they extended the amount of time that Taiwanese men are required to serve in the military. So Taiwan does maintain active conscription. It requires all male citizens of military age who qualify to serve. And the required time used to be just four months. But now, due to fears that China will soon make good on all its pledges to invade their country, the Taiwanese have to serve at least one year. And then the biggest story of the week is that Russia is having considerable success with a new missile saturation tactic that allows it to penetrate Ukraine's air defenses and strike more civilian targets in the country. So, Jeremiah, the main story out of Asia this week comes to us from that ongoing conflict. That's right. We are nearly two years into Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine, and Russia is using a new missile strategy in Ukraine now that combines cruise and ballistic missiles, and it fires them from multiple locations at once. And with this strategy, Russia has been remarkably successful at penetrating Ukraine's air defense systems and striking more civilian targets in Ukrainian cities. The most successful instance of this so far came on Tuesday when Russia fired a combination of 41 cruise and ballistic missiles, mostly at Kharkiv. Russia fired them from five different Russian uh, provinces at the same time, and this did overwhelm Ukraine's missile defense systems. Ukraine shot down only 21 of the 41. This is far below the average of 80 to 90 percent of missiles that Ukraine managed to shoot down throughout 2023. So that proves this new Russian strategy effective. 
Thanks to this new strategy, the Russian strikes killed seven civilians and injured more than 60 others, including children. And that's the goal for Russia. They want to bomb Ukraine cities back to the Stone Age, as they've done with cities in Syria and Chechnya before that. Russia wants to kill children and other civilians because they hope that this kind of slaughter and destruction will demoralize the population and convince them that surrender is the only way. And this new Russian strategy comes at a terrible time for the Ukrainians. America is no longer militarily supporting Ukraine. That support came to an end in December. Now, some European nations are still channeling significant resources to the Ukrainians and even ramping up their contributions. But the U.S. was the single largest backer, so it will be tough for Europe to make up the difference. So it looks like a very bleak winter ahead for the Ukrainians. But they are not yet defeated. This week, we actually saw Ukraine focus on a new strategy of its own, which is firing more missiles and drones at targets inside of Russia proper and hitting Russian oil infrastructure. Over the weekend, Ukraine struck a major fuel terminal in Ust-Luga. That's all the way up there near St. Petersburg. And this was a major setback for Russia. Like this Uslug is relevant because this is a main kind of Russian gateway of providing oil to the world. Russia is does not have a lot of warm sea uh, warm sea um, ports in general as a territory, and this area over here is extremely crucial. That was analyst Georgi Zivanov's there explaining part of the reason why this Ukrainian strike on this fuel terminal in Ustluga was such a blow to Russia. And there was a massive fire raging there for almost two days. And then just when the Russians got that fire extinguished, Ukraine struck another Russian oil facility in Krasnodar Krai. So these were major attacks on important Russian oil infrastructure, enough to increase global crude prices by about 2%. And oil is, of course, the bread and butter of Russia's economy. So we see that as we approach the two-year mark of this terrible war, both sides are finding new ways to attack each other. And we see that even with U.S. funding ended, the war could still go on for who knows how long. So is it a fair assessment to say that on both sides, the overall intensity of the war is escalating? Is it at its highest or is it peaks and valleys? What would you say? From what I can tell, peaks and valleys would probably be a more apt description. But I think what's interesting here is adapting. You see both sides adapting to overcome barriers. The Ukrainians are exploiting the fact that almost all Russian resources are now focused on Ukraine. So that leaves some very thin places near St. Petersburg and other areas. Um, and meanwhile, the Russians are, instead of spacing out their missiles with a barrage that lasts several hours, they fire them all at once. So I think what's mostly notable about this is just this adaptation that we see happening on both sides. Right. Plus, as you say, the major change of the United States withdrawing or no longer supporting uh, Ukraine to the same degree as it did before. I was looking this week at the history of the Holocaust and, and not just the death camps, but just the f conflict overall, the World War II. And you talked about being bombed back to the Stone Age. And that we've seen that in history, but it's happening now. I mean, people are actually living in, in, you know, Stone Age conditions, if you can call it that. That's happening right now in Russia and in Ukraine especially. So 
what are we looking for to come out of all this? I mean, like we said before, there's there's conflicts in many places. We point you to certain conflicts for certain reasons. Yeah, well, I think the big picture here is just this is another reminder that Russian President Vladimir Putin remains fiercely determined to conquer Ukraine. I don't know what would deter him. I, I don't know if there's anything that would. And he is adapting. He's finding new ways to assert his violent will. And one thing we can know, whether Putin accomplishes all of his objectives in the near term or not, we can know that he will not be taken out by this war. Trumpet editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry has said Putin is the figure discussed in Ezekiel 38.2. And if you read the verses after verse 2, and also some of the verses in chapter 39, you see that this individual will eventually be fighting wars far more destructive than this one. So we should not expect Putin to be removed by this. And if any listeners would like to learn more about them, I would encourage them to read Mr. Fleury's booklet called The Prophesied Prince of Russia. That's The Prophesied Prince of Russia. We are not above bombing people back to the Stone Age here in the modern world. We are not above having dictators rise and, as you say, assert their violent will we like to think that that's all behind us in World War II and maybe, you know, in third world parts of the world, but that's not the case. We are living in history right now. Again, that's the prophesied prince of Russia. Now we want to move, as I said, to the Middle East region, and we will have a rundown of the top stories there, a report from Mihailo Zekic. On January 24th, Reuters reported that the United States and Iraq are about to initiate talks to remove the last 2,500 troops stationed in Iraq back to the United States. United States Ambassador to Iraq, Alina Romanowski, reportedly presented Iraqi Foreign Minister Fawad Hussein a letter uh, from the U.S. government showing the terms which they would agree to leave, and notably not including any provisions that Iran-backed militias in Iraq stop attacking United States troops. So this would definitely be a big victory for Iran if this was to follow through. Also today, Reuters reported, citing Iranian officials, that China has been telling Iran to calm down the situation in the Red Sea and get its Houthi proxies to stop attacking merchant vessels. This is what one of the Iranians told Reuters, quote, basically, China says, if our interests are harmed in any way, it will impact our business with Tehran. So tell the Houthis to show restraint, end quote. This is the chaos in the Red Sea is obviously impacting a lot of countries, not just in the Middle East, not just in Europe, but also all the way in Asia. And we expect the crisis there to continue to draw the world's attention. And finally, for our top story also today, the International Court of Justice just released its uh, preliminary provisions on Israel. We talked about this on the program before with South Africa bringing charges of genocide against Israel to the court. And they made their verdict that they do have jurisdiction over what's going on in Israel and will closely monitor the situation there. So there's the situation on the ground in Gaza and the warfare going on there. But as we've learned, there's warfare of other kinds that's so significant what's happening in these courts and these halls of power in different parts of the world to stop Israel in a way that Gazan terrorists can't stop them. There's another war occurring against Israel 
that's not involving machine guns. Indeed. This is a little bit of an interesting scenario. For one thing, goes to show you what kind of anti uh, levels of anti-Semitism the United Nations has when normally these kinds of cases take years and years to solve. And the court itself won't actually make a ruling if Israel's committed genocide until probably a couple of years down the road. But the fact that they put in these provisional measures a couple of weeks after it was brought to their attention with one day for each side to present their evidence, I, if that isn't a miscarriage of justice, I don't know what is. This is, again, obviously an organ of the United Nations. Any ruling they make means that the Security Council has an obligation to implement it. But while South Africa and some of these other countries have been hoping this would, say, force Israel to back down, be a a, a new effective weapon against Israel, it's not exactly all bad news. It's a bit of a mixed bag. I shall now read out the operative part of the order. For these reasons, the court indicates the following provisional measures. One, by 15 votes to two, the State of Israel shall, in accordance with its obligations under the Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide in relation to the Palestinians in Gaza, take all measures within its power to prevent the commission of all acts within the scope of Article 2 of the Convention, in particular, A, killing members of the group, B, causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group, C, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part, and D, imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group. That was International Court of Justice President Joan Donahue giving the provisional measures there. And you could hear for what she's saying, she's basically telling Israel not to do genocide, which Israel isn't doing anyway. They also said later in her verdict that it was not in the clip there that they expect Israel to present a month from now, a report of everything that they've done to make sure that doesn't happen. So they're still saying it's under the jurisdiction. They're still saying they're concerned. They're still saying they want to look over this. South Africa, for their part, their foreign minister actually said this ruling doesn't really do anything at this point. Most notable is that they did not call for a ceasefire, which is what South Africa was hoping, which is what much of the rest of the world was hoping for. Israel, of course, is not pleased with this ruling in any way that the ICDJ is still uh, considering additional measures down the road. National Security Minister of Israel, Itamar Ben-Gavir, basically summarizes with his response, Haig Shmeg, which I couldn't help but chuckle at a little bit. But um, it's a victory in the short term. On the other hand, the fact that the court is still looking at this, on the other hand, the, that the court still says there's reason to be concerned about this means that maybe a month down the road this could be brought to the Security Council, maybe, and South Africa still has some influence over how this all goes. Maybe they could say, based off of Israel's report, no, we don't believe Israel acted in good enough faith or whatever, we're going to proceed with this. So Israel's not out of the water yet. But considering this is probably the best chance the international community had to force Israel to go to a ceasefire. And I'm sure there are lobbyists from different parts of the world pressuring the court to make sure this happened. And it didn't happen. The fact that little Israel could stand up to the whole world in this court, in the United Nations in general, with everything else that's been thrown at it through the UN and through other other means, 
shows that Israel does have a fighting chance in keeping the international community at arm's length and forcing them to not tell Israel what to do, to not stop this invasion. So it shows to show you how much power Israel has at this point and how, again, despite the bumps in the road, they're still moving ahead with the program and they're not going to let anybody stop them. And there's going to be more victories down the road, I'm sure. It's uh, interesting situation where one side is attacked by terrorists, which is a glorified criminal, and is expected to deal with it. One side gets October 7th terrorizing them and the world. One side gets attacked in the United Nations with more resolutions than I think we've said the rest of the world combined, and yet it soldiers on. And even in Gaza, the initial goal there uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu said was to restore deterrence. He didn't take October 7th and say, okay, we are wiping out Hamas and we are wiping out the Palestinians and we're taking over Gaza, which you might see that reaction from many countries in many situations. He promised a limited incursion, if you will. And yet Israel is still being attacked as committing genocide, as you say, speciously so and, and failingly so, so far. But this is part of a larger context. This is part of something bigger, this treatment of Israel. And can you just give us kind of that larger context? Sure. So we obviously cover global anti-Semitism and the global campaign against the state of Israel on this program so often for a reason. There is, uh, shall we say, an irrational obsession with the world for the Jews. And there's a prophecy in Second Kings chapter 14 that illuminates it a little bit. It speaks of there being no helper for Israel and that the name of Israel under heaven would all, was almost blotted out. This is technically speaking of the United States and the British Commonwealth countries. Our, our book, our free book, The United States and Britain and Prophecy by Herbert W. Armstrong can explain a little bit about that. But in verse 28 of Second Kings 14, it specifically mentions Judah or the Jews today, the state of Israel, what we would call today and them being mixed up in this as well, that they're almost, well, that they're facing threats and are under siege at the same time the United States is, that the name of Israel is literally on them, that they're under threat of being blotted out. But God says that he saved Israel and that he would raise up somebody to protect them. We expect this man in the United States to be Donald Trump. That hasn't happened yet, though it's looking more and more going into that direction with each day, it seems like. But it specifically says that once he comes back, all these problems the state of Israel is having, those are going to stop. Israel is going to get a resurgence itself. And since Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu came back into power two years ago, we've been seeing Israel in a bit of a resurgence. A lot of problems have been thrown at it, but they've been managing the problems in a way they haven't been for a while. And even this case with the ICJ, that's helped to unify the Israeli population quite a bit as well. Israel and South Africa were allowed to submit one judge of their own to sit on the panel to cover this. And Netanyahu picked uh, Aaron Barak, which longtime listeners of this program may know as the former chief justice of Israel that caused this judicial uh, overreach mess that's been causing Israel so many problems for years. Netanyahu picked Barak. Barak said yes, and he's one of the few judges that disagreed with or dissented from the court's opinion. So you're seeing one of Netanyahu's biggest enemies actually side with him in this common cause. 
even though Israel's still having problems in the country, we expect a lot of those to go away and for Israel to come out stronger from everything that's going on right now. We have an article back from our January 2023 edition called Bibi is Back. That's Bibi is Back by my predecessor covering the Middle East, Brent Noctegal. It goes into a little bit more detail on why we think that Israel is going to move up forward and especially once the political situation in America starts getting settled, why things will really start booming for the Jewish state. So that was BB is back at the trumpet.com and the trumpet.com has basically daily a new update on President Donald Trump coming back as well. We've covered that very extensively all the way back to a time when it did not seem that he was coming back. You also mentioned the United States and Britain in Prophecy by Herbert W. Armstrong. And if you're wondering why Israel, why is it so targeted? Why is it so hated? Why does it have this special relationship with the West, with Britain, but especially with the United States? Why is it that America and other nations were founded on principles that go back to Moses? Why are these two very different peoples, the Jews and the Americans, the British, the English-speaking world, some pretty distinct differences, different histories, and yet throughout the generations, really, they've been connected. They've had this connection. They're brother nations, as we've called them before on this program. The United States and Britain Prophecy by Herbert W. Armstrong will answer that question, and it'll also answer the question, if that's kind of in the back of your mind, are these God's favorite people? Why is the Bible from, you know, the mid-chapters of Genesis and before all about this one particular people. Well, the United States and Britain and Prophecy by Herbert W. Armstrong at thetrumpet.com. As I said, our third region is Europe, and now we will get a rundown of the top stories from Europe this week from Richard Palmer. Germany is thinking about recruiting foreigners into the German military. The German defense minister has raised this as a possibility for dealing with Germany's troop shortage, recruit from abroad, then others, including the head of the Parliamentary Defense Committee, has jumped on board and said, you know, yes, this sounds like a great idea, not just about numbers, but also because we aspire to build a European military. And so bringing other Europeans into the German military can be an important step in that direction. This is a key trend that we're watching. So that's a, a significant event. Uh, talking of a European military, the Israeli former Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Olmert, he told Spiegel, Europe's largest magazine, that uh, he called for a US-EU joint military force to be sent to Gaza. So you'd be looking at European peacekeepers in the Middle East. That, as we wrote about in the previous Trumpet print edition, is a very specific prophecy that you'll see European peacekeepers being set up over there in the Middle East. So it's very notable to see him calling for that. And talking about another very specific Bible prophecy, the Archbishop of Canterbury has been over to Rome this week for a week of celebrating Christ of global Christian unity, I think was how they phrased it. The Pope and the Archbishop had a joint service where they both jointly gave commissions to bishops. This included the Pope presenting a female Anglican bishop with a commission. The uh, Archbishop of Canterbury was allowed to celebrate an Anglican mass in a Catholic church, a Catholic basilica right there in Rome. He was allowed to do this by the Pope. This came up, I think, last April, where somebody allowed a, an Anglican service to go ahead in a Catholic church, and they had to apologize for it. That's just a few months ago. So these two churches are moving very quickly towards unity. 
that again is another specific prophecy. We talk about that in our free booklet. He was right that you would see unity between the, the Protestants and the Catholics as they gathered back into the Mother Church. So there's your rundown of European news. Richard Palmer, what is the main story that uh, you want us to focus on this week out of Europe? This is probably one of the biggest trends in Europe right now, and a lot of news events within Germany and beyond tie into this. We are seeing a very discontented Germany right now. This has been a week of protests. It's been a week of bad economic news, of new political parties being set up, of people going on strike. There's been a lot of people in the West saying, you go back two, three years and everyone was saying, why can't Britain, why can't America be more like Germany? They are what a modern, mature state should look like. And now you're really getting the feeling that the, the wheels are coming off everything. So you're having now several weeks of farmers' protests going on in Berlin. There were some pretty major protests in France this week where you're seeing this very rapidly rising protest movement where you've got tractors taking to the streets, blocking traffic, honking horns, I think burning stuff within France. Of course, France do their protests more dramatically than than anywhere else because they like that kind of thing. You have had one of Germany's biggest train strikes continuing. Uh, the latest round of that hit on Wednesday where the train drivers went on a six-day strike. That's the longest industrial action in the history of German railways. You've had a poll came out showing that only one in five people is, fa is satisfied with the German chancellor, Olaf Scholz. And you've had a new German political party set up this week where you know, recently we had one set up kind of on the, on the, the far left, but with some pretty right wing aspects to it. You're kind of seeing a mirror image of that with something that's pretty right with maybe a few left-wing aspects to it. So Hans-Georg Massen, he was a former director of the uh, domestic intelligence agency within Germany. He was fired for protecting neo-Nazi rioters in 2018. He came along and he officially launched a new, what he called conservative liberal party that is probably pretty similar to this conservative socialist party, this left-wing one that got set up a few weeks ago. I think we're seeing some pretty interesting parallels between now and what happened in the 1920s and 1930s. You were mentioning that how people used to look at Germany as the model example of what a mature democracy should look like. That was by design back when the United States and Britain were reorganizing West Germany. One of the reasons the Nazis came to power originally was because there were so many fractious different political parties that it was hard to bring a coalition together, that it was hard for parties to agree amongst each other. And modern Germany was built to basically avoid that. And for decades and decades, that basically was it. You had the Christian Democratic Union, the, the conservatives, the Social Democratic Party, the, the liberals, and the tiny free democratic party which was in the middle and usually one of those big parties and the smaller party would form government it was pretty stable chancellor stayed in office for a long time it hasn't gotten as bad yet the political situation as what the situation was in weimar days but it's starting to look more and more like that 
And more and more people in Germany, I'm sure, know that. And just even with history in hindsight, seeing this kind of political fracturing, people splitting off and forming their own parties, votes getting sucked in, these unstable coalitions like what we have in power today in Germany, that brings, I'm sure, a lot of ominous memories for a lot of people. And obviously the end result of that was Hitler taking over in 1933. And I'm sure that's in the back of many people's minds, too. Well, I think there is a real desire for stability within Germany. You, and, and part of that, yes, as you say, is the design of the political system. I think, you know, looking at it from abroad, it's very easy to be kind of like, oh, they're European, they're always having coalition spats and things like that. That isn't really true with Germany. They're more stable than Britain. They tend to have their chancellors in office for eight, 12 years or even more sometimes. And you know, this is this is they're very different to, say, Italy, where they defenestrate a politician every year or so. They're not used to this. And they're not. You, know, you go back to the early 90s and, and for years before then, you had one right wing party that had about 40 to 45 percent of the vote and one left wing party with about 40 to 45 percent of the vote. Now you've got six parties with the vote kind of roughly equally distributed between them with two new upstart parties entering the picture. Like, it's both a symptom and a problem in itself. It's like a symptom that people are completely fed up of the status quo, of the politicians that they have, of the options presented to them. But then also it means that I don't know how Germany gets another stable coalition ever again. Like, it's very hard to envision any election result because you've got so many extreme parties that people have said they're beyond the pale. We're not working with them. Like their politics has ceased to function. And we've and, looked at this really closely for a long time. And if you've been listening for a long time, you've heard, oh, Germany's politics are in crisis. Oh, Germany's politics are in crisis. It's getting worse and worse. <laughs> and like you said, it's at this point, it's not going back in the other direction at all. It's, it's going in a completely different and pretty ominous direction. Right. I, I don't think they know how to kind of get out of this doom spiral that they're in. And the reason why we focus on this is because of these key prophecies that you'll see a strongman rise to the fore in Germany. And there are some of the most significant prophecies about this end time. There's a central figure to a lot of this is a strong German leader that rises up, that dominates Europe. And this leader is not a Democrat. And he, he might pretend to be at times but he rules authoritatively, authoritarianly even. And it's not somebody that just wins an election and governs like a regular chancellor or president or prime minister. And so when you see German politics cease to function and you see people setting up new political parties because they desperately want something different, and you see people doing their longest ever protests and, and industrial action. and th you know, It's a sign that people are just dissatisfied, not just with one man, not just with Olaf Schultz, but the entire system that brought us Olaf Schultz and that brought us to this point. They were equally unhappy at times under Angela Merkel. And so there's an appetite there to smash the system and replace it. And that's paving the way for this prophesied strongman that is something that, her, that W. Armstrong forecast for years, it's something we forecast from the earlier, you know, all the way back to the 1991 Trumpet magazine. And you really see now you know, events moving inexorably in that direction. And we have a Trends article, Why the Trumpet Watches the Rise of a German Strongman, that will take you through in more detail. Those prophecies should help you see directly how this comes right out of the Bible uh, and how we're moving very quickly in that direction. We are living in history. I mentioned that earlier with the war in Ukraine, but we 
are living in history. That's a principle that I, I have learned more and more, especially being involved in Trumpet Hour. Mihailo Zekic there talked about the similarities to roughly a century ago, not, not even a century ago, of German political instability and what the potential outcome of that was then and turned out to be and what the potential outcome of it is now. We are living in historical times. And we look back at those black and white pictures of Germany back in the 20s or 30s especially, and it seems different. They, you know, it's black and white. It's, <laughs> they're wearing different clothes. It's the past. But I might have mentioned this quote before from historian David McCullough. He said, you know, nobody ever lived in the past, just to paraphrase, you know. You know, nobody ever said, look at us walking around in our funny clothes. Isn't it interesting to be living in the past? They were living in the present and historically terrible things happened. We're living in the present and we're on the verge of some historically dramatic and yes, historically terrible things happening. And there's political unrest in other parts of the world. There's a political unrest in other parts of history, but we on Trump are focusing on particular ones for particular reasons. And, and that's why you need to watch Germany and, and check out that trend section of the trumpet.com, the most underrated part of the trumpet.com, I think. <laughs> if you go there, it's way over there on the right side at the top, the trumpet.com. Go to trends and, and you'll see these, these basic trends that, that we're watching every week and fitting the news into those silos, those containers, if you will. And if you click on one, the one Mr. Palmer mentioned there, why the trumpet watches the rise of a German strongman, right at the beginning of the article, you'll see a timeline. And if you click on that, we've sorted all the day-to-day, week-to-week events that support this trend, that point to this trend there. And it's much too much to click on and read them all, but just to scroll through them and to realize all these individual events are pointing to the same trend or part of the same trend is really an education in itself. Now we move on to region four of four, Anglo-America, and this summary of this week's top news from Andrew Miller. On Sunday, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis suspended his presidential campaign, leaving Nikki Haley as the only remaining alternative to Donald Trump for the Republican nomination. On Tuesday, Canada's federal court found the Trudeau government's move to block the 2020 truckers' protest was unjustified and in violation of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Also on Tuesday, Donald Trump won 55% of the vote in the New Hampshire primary. This makes Trump the first non-incumbent to win both Republican presidential contests in Iowa and in New Hampshire. But the top story this week is actually about something that happened three years ago. Federal agents are still offering $500,000 for information they might not even want. Why? Because the information would lead to the arrest and convicting of someone who might be an asset or even a federal agent. That someone planted two pipe bombs in Washington, D.C. on January 6, 2021. The person was assumed to be a Republican extremist, but new video footage posted on Republican Representative Thomas Macy's YouTube channel shows an undercover police officer casually discussing the placement of a bomb with someone in a Secret Service SUV. It appears the black Secret Service SUV was actually part of a motorcade that had delivered Vice President-elect Kamala Harris to the DNC building 90 minutes earlier. 
That seems like why the FBI is acting like it is so eager to find out who planted the bomb, yet has been stonewalling regarding the identity of the person who discovered it. Before the rioting at the Capitol began, Harris knew about the bomb, which was much nearer, and none of the security officials in her motorcade seemed in a hurry to do anything about it. That is because she wanted Donald Trump's supporters to look like violent insurrectionists. So that last story, that main story that you mentioned was a trumpet brief this week on Tuesday from executive editor Stephen Flurry. If you'd like to subscribe, go to thetrumpet.com slash brief and you can get all the daily trumpet emails you can want uh, and tailor them to your preference. Just these ones or just those ones, however you like it best. But Andrew, give us a little bit more detail on this evidence and what it indicates. Yeah, I think the story is a really great example of how oftentimes what you see is the headline news in mainstream media is not actually the biggest news. Because like I said, as far as what's new this week is that a representative from Kentucky put a video on their, on their YouTube channel. That's what happened this week. But that video, and I recommend you uh, anyone watch it if they can see it, because it's pretty shocking because they're showing more and more footage coming out from the January 6th insurrection of this person who finds a bomb. Uh, I think the particular video is in front of the DNC headquarters. And normally, like if I found a bomb in front of a headquarters, you'd be like running away to get it first to get away from the bomb so I don't blow up. Uh, And second, to find a police officer so that he knows there's a bomb so that they can get a bomb squad or a SWAT team or something in there to defuse this thing. It's like you wouldn't normally just like stroll on over and lean up against the side of a Secret Service SUV that's got people in um, Vice President-elect Harris's entourage and sit there and discuss it because it's very clear. It's like these people, it's an undercover police officer, which is strange to begin with. It's like, okay, like, well, police officer found the bomb and then he went over there and told people about it, but like no one's doing anything about it and no one's concerned And when you say he went over there to the SUV, how far away was this from the location of the bomb? Not far, because you can see the bomb in the video, and you can see the SUV, so it's like you're within the planetary blast radius. So it's, and it's definitely something that, um, if the 2020 election was stolen, and the man in the White House is a fake president, then that is your biggest news story every week. Every week. (laughs) Until, like, we become a real democratic republic again. And so this video is showing, is like, because we're seeing more in, the, more in the news reels, it's like they're trying to bar Trump from running from office by saying that he's guilty of treason and insurrection for stirring up the January 6th insurrection. So January 6th is very central to all of this. And so I was like, okay, it's like, well, if his, if his supporters were planting bombs at January 6th, that would seem like, good evidence that like maybe he is guilty of insurrection but if it's an undercover police officer planting the bombs then you're figuring like so well why would why would the feds want to frame someone because he's like you, so the only reason you'd plant a bomb is you're trying to frame someone it's like what are they trying to frame is because it's like inside the capitol that day you've got a hundred representatives getting ready to constitutionally debate the evidence of election fraud that never happened because they evacuated the building because, hey, there's bombs outside. But if if Harris's entourage knew about the bomb at 1.05, and I, I think 1 o'clock is about when the protests start getting rowdy and, and then violent later on. So it's like if you knew about the bomb at 1.05 before the protest even happened and didn't do anything about it, 
then it's like so th- then this whole thing is a setup where you're trying to make it look like Republicans are planting bombs so that the capital will be evacuated, which accomplishes two things. One, the evidence for elections never debated, which is big. And two, the people who supposedly planted the bombs look like violent insurrectionists that you can then use Section 3 of the 14th Amendment to bar from office using the insurrection clause. Right. And that's ongoing. We've referred to that as lawfare, trying to to bar President Trump from office. I mean, just, just to be clear, there, there were two alleged bombs located. They weren't on Capitol Hill itself. They were in the Capitol Hill area. Uh, because they were at the Democratic National Committee headquarters and the Republican National Committee headquarters. So both parties were were targeted in this way. So there is some confusion and obscurity probably by design on this. But this is a very intriguing, very strange video and, and one that Representative Massey has staked part of his reputation on by putting it on his own website as legitimate. So we will uh, see if we can find that and put that in the show notes. But as you say, we've heard in the past in history that there have been pretenders to the throne. The allegation that right now there is a pretender to the throne is the top news every week. Like you said, I really appreciate the way you said that. And it's something that you've been keeping a a really close eye on for, for a really good reason. Right. And the the Bible verse we <laughs> seems like we always go to when we talk about these type of topics, which is often Second Kings fourteen verses twenty six and twenty seven, that talks about a bitter affliction of Israel that God has to intervene to save it, that it's not blotted out from under heaven. So that's some pretty serious language. That's so like the end time Israel, which if you've read the United States and Britain in prophecy, is the United States and Britain is in danger of being blotted out. Now, obviously, a couple pipe bombs in the capital city, it's not going to kill all the people in the nation. If you can uh, use that as like they're doing as a pretext to actually do away with free and fair elections uh, and install an oligarchical puppet that is run from a shadow president behind the scenes, then America is no longer a constitutional republic. It, it, it's something different. Like, it's like the, the geographic borders of America still exist. The people who live there still exist. But its form of government has been completely revolutionized. It's not even a republic anymore. It would be a dictatorship of some stripe, which is – yeah, it's a completely thing. So the nation that was governed by the constitution anymore doesn't exist. It's blotted out unless God intervenes to save it and restore the constitutional system of government that defines the American nation. So it's right there in Bible prophecy, and and you can definitely uh, read all about it in our uh, editor-in-chief's book, America Under Attack, and also in our executive editor's trumpet brief, America's Reichstag Fire, which actually makes the uh, somewhat inflammatory but accurate comparison of planting these bombs and other things things at January 6th to what happened in Germany in 1933 when Adolf Hitler used a fire at the Reichstag, which he may or may not have started himself, to convince parliament into giving him dictatorial powers and blotting out the government structure that was the Weimar Republic. Yet another way of saying that we are living in historic times. We are living in historic times. That was America's Reichstag fire, an article on the trumpet.com. 
as well as did the feds plant the January 6th pipe bomb? And that is a question. There is a question mark on that. There's just uh, evidence indicating that something was very strange about that discovery of that DNC pipe bomb. So we don't know uh, what happened there, but you can read the details there on thetrumpet.com and did the feds plant the January 6th pipe bomb. You are living in historic times. And as you were talking there, I was thinking of how Trump editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry was talking about the Constitution. He wasn't the only one in the world talking about, you know, the Constitution's being destroyed. But he was talking about it at a time when, when the average person was not. If you go back to the January 2009 Philadelphia Trump, it's got the Constitution on the cover, Trump.com. Go to the very bottom, click magazine, and you can see the old issues of the trumpet. January 2009, Philadelphia trumpet, and uh, the radical left in the American Constitution. You've got Barack Obama on there. And at that point, he writes that Barack Obama seemed to be just like any other liberal leftist politician. But he went straight to his relationship with the Constitution, straight to his relationship with the law. And he warned that, in your words, the form of government is being destroyed. The, the, the people, the population is still there, the borders, maybe they're not defended, but they still exist on, on a map. But the, the constitutional structure, the, the, the nature of the country is the laws, and those laws were being destroyed, have been destroyed. And you can read more about that in America Under Attack at americaunderattack.com. Stay with us. We'll be right back. You're listening to KPCG 101.3 and Trumpet Hour Week in Review. Trumpet Hour, the Week in Review. All right, now it's time for our roundtable discussion here at the end of Trumpet Hour. We like to get all the voices involved on something that touches on more than more than one region, and this definitely, definitely does. And this is the subject of what we call Seagates. You've heard this phrase before if you're a regular listener, and uh, it's a description of these strategic maritime choke points, these places that ships have to pass through to continue global trade. And there's some that are more important than others. And sometimes they're in the news. Most of the time, they're not. But as we've said before, if you look around the room around you right now, most of the stuff in there was on a ship, probably multiple times. Sometimes the raw materials are shipped from one continent to another, refined to some degree, shipped back to another continent, for final finishing, and then the final product shipped to another continent, or maybe even the first or second continent again for sale and consumption. So if you ever check out like a maritime map, some of these uh, websites have like a real-time map of these ships, and you see how many ships are afloat right now carrying all this cargo back and forth and back and forth. It's a circulatory system. Uh, for, for global commerce and in a world where everybody gets their stuff off the grocery shelf and the, and the uh, department store shelf and doesn't grow it themselves, doesn't make it themselves, the circulatory system analogy is very apt. When that stops, when that gets choked off, some 
bad things happen. So right now, this global circulatory system, these Seagates are in the news. And Mr. Palmer, maybe you can give us a few more specifics about uh, what specifically is happening regarding these choke points. Yes, I mean, that's a great introduction because so many of the things that we're talking about is like talking about this is how this is eventually going to affect your life. Right. Like this is how politics in Germany is going to lead to this. It's going to lead to this rise of the strong man who, yeah, absolutely is going to dramatically change your life. But this is something that is like this is affecting your life tomorrow. Right. Uh, it is something very direct where 90 percent of the world's trade travels over oceans here in the UK. Ninety five percent of everything that we have comes over the oceans. And more importantly, this is something that the Bible has a lot of very, very specific prophecies about. To me, it's just so fascinating that due to a number of quote unquote coincidences, we're seeing these particular ocean passages all coming under threat together. And it's a little preview of some of what the Bible has said is going to come upon our nations and how badly we're going to hurt, be hurt by the loss of these gates. So just to give maybe a bit of a global overview, you've got, I think as most are aware, the Houthis cutting off or hurting the trade going through the Red Sea. So Yemen sticks out a bit and uh, they're firing, taking pot shots at ships coming through the Babel Mandeb Strait. You don't have to sink 100% of ships that go through the Babel Mandeb Strait to stop commercial shipping going through there. You just have to you just have to do enough damage to make insurers unwilling to insure ships going through there. They've accomplished that. So now most of the bigger shipping companies are now sailing all the way around the uh, the coast of South Africa. This has led to already some indications are showing a doubling of the cost of shipping a container. It's more expensive now to ship a container from China to Europe than it is to ship it from China to somewhere in the Americas, simply because the European route would normally go through the Red Sea, and now it's having to be a lot, lot longer. This also just consumes much more shipping. Like you just cannot ship as much stuff because a larger percentage of the world's shipping capacity is currently en route because that route is taking longer. And so that's, I think, an underappreciated aspect of this is you just can't. It's not, okay. well, it's an inconvenience because I have to wait a few more days and my bananas aren't ripe for quite as long. It's you fundamentally cannot ship as many bananas and 95 percent of everything. So it leads to less capacity. It leads to shortages. This leads directly to inflation, both in terms of the costs get passed on to the consumer and just not as much stuff is getting to market. So this has very direct effects. At the same time that this is happening, you've got a drought in Panama. Panama Canal is is getting low, and I think we'll hear a little bit more on some of the details on that for, from Andrew. But this is these are the biggest shipping, the most important sea gates in the world, the Panama Canal, the Suez Canal, and they're both shutting down together. That has major ramifications. Yeah, that's right. There's um, actually, uh, I didn't know this until just about a year ago, but I, I'd always assume that the canal was just kind of like, you know, you, you cut a path between two oceans and the water flows through. But no, like the canal, it's, there's so many mountains in Panama that it's well above sea level. And so you've got locks that are filled up with fresh water so that the ships lifted up sails across, and then lifted back down. Uh, and those locks come from Lake Gatang, which is up in the mountains. And there's been a, 
like a 20-year drought in Panama that's gotten particularly bad in the last two or three years. And so the, the water levels in Lake Gatang keep going down lower and lower and lower uh, and to where they're, <laughs> they're worried they'll drain that thing dry uh, and they need it for fresh water as well uh, if, they keep, if they fill up the locks too many times. So they, they just announced this week that they're actually slashing traffic through the canal this year by about 36%. I think about last year they were saying they could get about 38 ships a day through the Panama Canal. And now, uh, just due to water reasons, they're only letting 24 ships in, which is a big deal because, I mean, it's a big enough canal that I've, uh, I've flown over it. I think I was en route to Peru the last time I've seen it from the air. But it's amazing to see at night because you just see lights of boats going off both ways into the far horizon as they just sit in a queue and wait for their turn to be one of the 38 ships that gets to go through the thing. Now, if there's only 24 ships, that queue, they're saying it's going to get so long, a lot of the boats, it's actually going to be faster for them to sail around South America instead of waiting, which slows down traffic it's probably going to cost Panama oh, between $500 million and $700 million in toll fees, lost business revenue by not having the boat go through, which is bad for Panama, but also bad for just global trade because it means that wait times for goods is going to get longer if you have to sail around South America, and the price of goods is going to get more expensive if it goes up around South America. And it also just draws attention to the fact that like, what if that lake were to go dry or, or something else were to stop that canal? Because it's uh, a lot of historians mark the digging of the Panama Canal as kind of America's like entrance onto the world scene as a superpower. Right. Because now the our East Coast Navy and our West Coast Navy, which used to be for all intents and purposes, two separate navies, are now one navy that can go back and forth and project power across both oceans. Uh, and so just from the national security point, without that canal, even aside from the trade standpoint, it basically cuts our naval military might in half. I want to tie back into uh, something Mr. Palmer mentioned out uh, with how this could affect people like overnight. And it's not even just imports that we're talking about. It's not even just going to the supermarket and seeing that you can't buy grapefruits anymore or anything like that. It also affects exports. It also affects jobs at home. I'd like to bring in a few statistics about one of my favorite nuts, the almond. It's a bit expensive, and it's probably going to get more expensive if these uh, trade routes keep getting tampered with. But did you know that 80% of the world's almonds are grown in one place? That's California. 80%. It's its number one crop export. It employs almost 100,000 people just in farming and processing and manufacturing in California. What happens if all of a sudden the ships can't leave the port? What happens if all of a sudden they're stuck in a queue at the Panama Canal when it would have been easier for them to sail around Chile to reach, say, Europe or Africa or wherever. There's obviously overland routes with trains and that kind of thing. But leaving that aside, are people going to want to buy almonds anymore? Are people going to wa want to buy this expensive nut? People are going to stop buying them from abroad. And then in turn, that's going to lay off thousands, 
tens of thousands, perhaps, of people. When you apply that for every industry in this globalized economy, when it's not just we're buying things from all over the world, we're selling things from our own to all over the world. You're talking about massive layoffs, it's Great Depression-style economic problems. And what we just even seen, say, with people complaining about jobs getting sent over to China and we're, you know, we're not investing in American steel or American coal or whatever. What happens when there's no market for a lot of those products in the first place? What happens when even if you could do your job, you can't because nobody's buying from you? That's going to cause social upheaval in so, so many different ways that'll impact basically every factor of our economy. This is the circulatory system of the world. That is what this is. I mean, you talk about almond orchards lying fallow because in the case of produce, it rots on the ship. And there's already problems where, you know, if the ship doesn't get there on time, the cargo, if it's produce, it is destroyed because because it rots. Uh, but even with other materials, wood, metal, uh, and so forth, like you say, you, you're going to have factories that must run 24-7. They have to run 24-7 through the night to make money, to keep themselves in existence with no inputs, not enough aluminum, not enough plastic, whatever it is. Factories that make the tooling, that make the machines in the factories, <laughs> All these steps, all these underlying levels of industry that all require inputs and outputs, and not only that, but a flow, a a consistent flow of inputs, consistent flow of outputs, just like the almond orchards, just like the banana plantations, would it be? All all those uh, places where things are produced require these inputs and require, also require the output. They cannot store indefinitely their output if they're able to even make output. So it's a circulatory system. It's got to keep moving. And you've got, in the case of Panama, God controls the weather, and the environment itself is causing that uh, canal to be limited. And in the case of the Bab el-Mandeb, the Red Sea there between the Arabian Peninsula and Africa, you've got human intervention shutting down a lot of the traffic from there. But those aren't the only places on Earth where this shift between America and its allies controlling Seagate's and therefore there being a constant flow through those Seagates is changing. That's a great point. This is truly a global trend. And uh, at the same time that the Panama Canal and and Suez Canal and other Middle Eastern waterways are um, struggling with such serious challenges, at the same time as all that's happening, China is continuing its quest to dominate the South China Sea and the various sea gates that access it. This is a tremendously important maritime region. Around one-third of the world's maritime commerce flow through here. I'm not sure about how many almonds pass through it, but it's about 60% of Japan's oil and gas, 60% of South Korea's oil and gas, 60% of Taiwan's oil and gas, and 80% of China's oil and gas. So just massive in terms of uh, the fuel that's powering some of the world's most important and large economies. And so in this quest, China's been building islands in the South China Sea for the last decade or so, turning those into military bases. We spoke on a recent Trumpet Hour episode about China building replicas of American warships also to function basically as targets for the Chinese to, to you know practice firing on. That was just a chilling sign of China preparing for naval war against the U.S. And that war, of course, would be for the purpose of dominating the South China Sea. And then just yesterday, China published yet another fiery statement basically asserting 
its exclusive right to this critical maritime commerce highway. This was in response to the Philippines working to reinforce its military presence on a shoal that rightfully belongs to the Philippines. And China's been bullying the Philippines near here in all kinds of ways, firing water cannons at its ships, even ramming one of its ships recently. And yesterday, China published a statement saying, quote, anything that infringes on China's sovereignty and security, China will never allow it. Pretty stunning to hear that language when you realize they're talking about an area that is part of the Philippines' exclusive economic zone. And China's been similarly bullying Vietnam and a couple of other nations that have territory in this waterway. And it's all to assert Chinese dominance over this critical commerce highway. China could really hold the world economically hostage if it succeeds in in militarizing and taking over this region. So it's really a big part of the whole Seagate story. So look, we are living in historic times. We are seeing dramatic events that are setting up to affect all of our lives, or as Mr. Palmer said, ready to affect our lives tomorrow and not just in how quickly we get our finished products, but whether those products ever get made in the first place. And as they say, when goods don't cross borders, armies do. Like we are we are setting up for historically dramatic events to happen. For those those lights in the darkness that that you mentioned, Andrew Miller, to to stretch on and on and on of those ships unable to get through or for those lights not to be there at all. And so let me point you again to the United States and Britain in prophecy. Look it up on thetrumpet.com and you can perform a search. You might not know this, but you can hit control F on most computers or if you're on a Mac, command F. And you can search the term Seagates, maybe just gates, and just fly through the United States and Britain in prophecy and look at those words that were written decades and decades ago about the importance of these particular gates. We mentioned earlier, there are other strategic assets that exist, but United States and Britain Prophecy focuses on these, I think, more than any other. It mentions mountain passes and so forth, but these sea gates, you can move so much more over the water than you can on land or definitely through the air. These sea gates, this global circulatory system is absolutely crucial to understand, and United States and Britain and Prophecy will give you an incredible insight into that very topic. So that's all the time we have for today. We want to uh, thank you for listening. We want to thank our audio producers, Parker Campbell and Isaac Lorenz. We want to thank our panel, which is Mihailo Zekic, Andrew Miller, Jeremiah Jacques, and Richard Palmer. And we'll be back with you next week on the Trumpet Hour Week in Review. 